Uh, well, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Fred Kemp. I'm president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Here in my guise is an FOZ, uh, a friend of Zal, uh, and uh, an admirer of his thinking for more than three decades. Um, the ultimate compliment to someone like Zal is when a journalist, say at the Wall Street Journal or elsewhere, and I was at the Wall Street Journal at that time, becomes hooked on his analysis. And uh, we first ran across each other in the uh, first part of the 1980s, um, where I was a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Europe at that time, London and then Vienna, but covering uh, everything to do with the Soviet Union. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and then ultimately turning to Zal when I think you were at Columbia University to be my advisor, guide, and mentor as I ventured behind Soviet lines uh, as, as a reporter. Um, and even though I had all the right garb, I don't think I looked particularly Afghan, even with my couple of weeks. Maybe Nuristani, yes. So from a, <laughs> from, from a professional and a personal standpoint, it is such a pleasure to welcome you here. Thank you. Zal, uh, uh, board director Zalmay Khalilzad, uh, the former ambassador to Afghanistan, Iraq, the United Nations, with many impressive stops along the way that he outlines compellingly uh, in his recently published memoir, uh, The Envoy from Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World. Uh, one fact I learned from the book of many is that Zalmay means youthful, and you're looking as youthful as always <laughs> uh, this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, a special uh, 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 welcome uh, uh, to uh, the ambassador of India who is here. Thank you so much, ambassador from India to the DC. I think we have the uh, the Albanian ambassador is here as well. Yes, he's right there. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't see yeah, you yeah, right, no, right. right away. And I think the Slovenian ambassador as well. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you all here. Um, I'd like to also recognize the Biot Group represented today by Monty Simus, uh, with whose support uh, we're taking uh, the Council's Afghanistan work to the next level. I also want to thank Zal for his support and the Khalizad Chair, uh, which Jim Cunningham, Ambassador Cunningham, has held. I don't know if Jim's here now, but no, he's he, done a great job. Um, uh, the Biot Group is also supporting this event. And for those of you who will come to our awards dinner on May the 3rd, uh, we'll also be distributing in our gift bag uh, copies of Zal's book. Uh, you know, courtesy of uh, the, uh, sorry, the Bayat Foundation. The Bayat Foundation supporting this event and also the, um, the books then. Books are on sale here for all of you here. We'll have a reception afterwards. Uh, as a book author myself, I want you to uh, read the book. I want you to buy the book. But if you're not going to read the book, you should at least buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to remind everyone that this event is public and on the record. We encourage you to join the conversation online with the hashtag ACSouthAsia. Uh, uh, the book has already met with the claim. The Wall Street Journal has called it, quote, required reading for anyone requiring a detailed chronicle of America's nation-building efforts after the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, unquote. A former deputy CIA director and current Atlantic Council board director Michael Morell described it as, quote, riveting in its telling, inspiring in its stories, and insightful in its commentary. It is a magnificent read, and it, and it escapes categorization. 
uh, Zal, uh, as does Zal himself. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a pragmatist, an idealist, a realist, a strategist, and an operator. The book itself is at once a compelling memoir, an incisive bit of history, and a work of political philosophy. Interwoven throughout it is a poignant story of an immigrant born in the ancient city of Mazar Sharif in Afghanistan, highest ranking Muslim to ever serve in a US administration, coming from humble beginnings. Seven of his mother's 13 children uh, did not survive infancy. His rite of passage is the stuff of movies. I don't know who's going to play you, <laughs> whether you've sold the rights yet. Okay. We can add, do that in the question and answer session. Uh, former colleague Condoleezza Rice, Secretary Rice, has noted, quote, there was something about Zal's effectiveness in the Middle East that seemed attributable to his comfort with the ways of the region. And better yet, the region's comfort level with him. His perspective is invaluable. Through his lens, Zal draws powerful conclusions, and we'll talk about many of them in the conversation, and I'll start in a Q&A with him here, and then I'll come to the audience. Uh, and his familiarity and proximity to events in Afghanistan and Iraq make his stance on America's role then, but also now, and his insist insistence that we remain a leader within the international community even more compelling. The final chapter of his book uh, is really sort of a culmination of everything he's learned and seen in his life and how it should be carried forward in its must-reading. Uh, the book also offers unfiltered insight into Zal's career, including the three ambassadorial posts I talked about, senior positions, State Department, uh, Defense Department, White House, and then culminating with uh, his appointment as UN ambassador in the second Bush administration. Um, if you want to read the compelling story of an immigrant made good, read this book. If you want to know how to structure and write a memoir, read this book. If you want to know how Zal met his wife in Beirut in a purple miniskirt <laughs> where he played pinball and learned about the Palestinian cause, read this book. By the way, Cheryl, where is Cheryl, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, one of my favorite stories, because you hear Zal's voice once in a while in the book, but particularly the scene where he meets you, where he's standing in line, I think, to go to some social event dance or something. Dance, yeah. And men had to pay and women <laughs> didn't. And so he complained to the person taking the ticket, saying, you know, this was at a time where there was a lot of ferment in the Arab world, and particularly in Beirut and, and the American University of Beirut. And, 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 and he, he, he said, uh, this is unfair, we're talking about equality of the sexes, I don't think I should pay. Uh, and all the time, Cheryl is right behind him, uh, listening to this very humorous and insistent person, then arguing with the people selling tickets that just because he had a beard didn't mean he was a man. <laughs> um, and, and any of you knows all uh, can hear him saying these things. Um, and, and so for some of the young people in the audience, it's also good advice on how to meet a mate. Um, <laughs> if you want to read about his seven-year-old son's complaints about his long hours of work uh, at the Pentagon when he said to his father, he's going to the stupid Pentagon of idiotic power, <laughs> read this book. And if you want to know how we went from liberation to occupation and then ultimately to failure in Iraq, uh, uh, read this book. Uh, it's one of the most important accounts of the opportunities we had there and, uh, and how uh, they went uh, astray. It's a human story, a significant story, and a thought-provoking analysis, and now we're going to get into it. Um, uh, so please join me in welcoming Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, I wouldn't mind just starting uh, with um, what prompted you to write it now and in this way, uh, because it is a mixture of stories and right. genres. Right. Well, first of all, thank you very much, yep. uh, Fred, for your friendship and for your leadership of the council and for your advocacy on behalf of my book. You've, <laughs> you've, done, you've done a great job, and I'm very much indebted to you. And I'm also very honored to see friends uh, uh, like the Indian ambassador here that I've known for a long time, and to uh, colleagues uh, I see in the audience, friends and colleagues that uh, we have worked together uh, in various places. During uh, my career, I see friends who worked with me in Afghanistan, uh, people who represented Afghanistan very, with distinction. I see colleagues who helped me in Afghanistan uh, from the Afghan Reconstruction Group, uh, and I see friends uh, from Iraq, uh, Kurdistan, uh, and so it's a, it's a I'm humbled, uh, personal friends, family, and so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm delighted and I thank the two distinguished ambassadors from Europe uh, who are here. Um, now, as far as why I wrote the book now, uh, uh, it, it's just I'm, uh, I said, I'm, I don't write very quickly. It's, uh, I, there was a, a, a market demanded, uh, if there was a demand for something like this, that I should have written the book soon after I left office. Uh, because people uh, would, uh, uh, I was told the information would be fresh, there would be still, I'd been a public figure, uh, 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 but I, I, I took my time uh, in order to reflect uh, and to do a, another quick, uh, piece of writing, but to do a measured uh, uh, piece of work, uh, and that took time. Uh, and uh, uh, as to why I did it the way I, I did it, I owe uh, uh, to Colin Powell in part, uh, because uh, when I uh, talked with him about writing a book a few years ago, uh, uh, and he said, what do you want to write about? And I said about Iraq. And Afghanistan, my experience is there, what worked, what didn't work, what future diplomats, military officers, intelligence uh, uh, people from the United States can learn. Uh, uh, he said, no one will be interested in that book. Uh, 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 people are tired of hearing about Iraq and Afghanistan, he said. So he said that uh, he wanted to write a book when he wrote his uh, memoir uh, about uh, uh, his uh, role in designing Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, an earlier Iraq uh, problem, but that uh, uh, when his uh, publisher assigned someone to him uh, to help him write the book, he interviewed them, and the more, over time, the part about his life uh, uh, increased and the part about the Iraq strategy of the storm declined in a number of words or chapters. And uh, uh, so uh, I wrote it the way I did uh, as a memoir that starts where I was born, how life was in Afghanistan as a child to the best of my ability to remember. And I am indebted to my sisters and some of my 
uh, other uh, uh, relatives and uh, friends who remember Afghanistan of that period uh, that, uh, to make sure I got it, uh, everything uh, accurate. And, uh, and so it starts, the journey starts in Mazar-e-Sharif in northern Afghanistan and continues to Kabul where I came from a 50,000 large city to a 500,000 large city and then go after a couple of years in Kabul to come to the United States and, 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 and the rest. So I, uh, uh, and, and that was compelling a way to do it for the publisher as well. Uh, and the publisher actually wanted a lot more about uh, uh, Afghanistan, early life, my personal life, family life. But uh, uh, given the word limit yeah. of 100,000 or so, although it's 135,000, imagine the negotiations with the publisher back and forth. And I had actually written uh, initial draft, which was twice as long as what you have. Uh, and so we reached a mutual accommodation uh, for the length uh, uh, that you have. So uh, that's sort of how it came together. I, I think what I like about it, and I think what you as readers will like about it, is that there are some memoirs that give you a chapter on personal life and then the rest is substance uh, or a, a first, fourth, or whatever on personal life. And here it's interspersed. Yeah. And uh, you know, a medical emergency that you had uh, as you were off to Iraq as ambassador and that sort of thing. So let me start, uh, and, and I'll go a little bit you know, through the, 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 the narrative of the book touching briefly on points that I think are of interest uh, to understanding both you and your, um, your, your life and, and your observations uh, before I go to the audience. And I, I won't go too long, but I want to give people a sense here. Um, the, uh, I, I, I talked a little bit about your childhood in my opening comments. Um, the, um, and just give a taste of some of the writing. My birth as a healthy boy was a cause of first celebration. Of my five older siblings, only one survived, and to everyone's distress, that one was a mere girl, my sister Aziza. My mother knew the realities facing women in Afghanistan and, in a sense, felt culpable for bringing girls into a world where they would become victims of social injustice. Uh, then you write, and there's a question com coming out of this, then you write about when you left for America. Um, uh, and uh, your family followed uh, Afghan tradition. They held up a copy of the Quran under which you walked three times. And as I was leaving the house, your sister sprinkled water on the floor behind me to ensure that you would come back. What was the Afghanistan you were leaving? And what was it to your family that you were going out that door to this place called America? Transport us to that time. Yeah. First, of course, uh, I have to say some of my colleagues here would know that Mazar-e-Sharif, where I was, it was close to a city called Balkh, uh, which is in northern Afghanistan. And this is a place that uh, at one point in history was uh, almost a kind of center of civilization. Uh, uh, Central Asia, which uh, uh, includes, in my judgment, uh, Iran, but also the current Central Asia and Afghanistan, uh, was uh, the seat of great empires uh, and great learning uh, centers, uh, uh, produced great philosophers, uh, thinkers, uh, uh, 
Rumi, for example. Uh, 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 but that then, uh, because of a, uh, a lot of reasons we don't have time to go through, it declined. And at the time that uh, uh, I was uh, growing up in Mazar, it was a backwater place, not the center of uh, world uh, uh, commerce and attention. It was very undeveloped or underdeveloped. Uh, the, there was uh, uh, no television. Uh, there was uh, hardly any cars. Uh, there was, uh, we traveled on a uh, horse uh, 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 driven carriages, even long distances when my father would move from one area to another. I went to school on a horse uh, for part of the period uh, because uh, the, where we lived and where the school was in Charbolak, for my Afghan friends who are here, uh, was some, uh, on, near the Amudarya, uh, near the Soviet border uh, uh, very much. Uh, and uh, um, there was, uh, we didn't have a telephone, uh, 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 you know, it was very uh, underdeveloped life expectancy. I used to be teased by my friends at the University of Chicago what a miracle I was that I was, uh, had made it to age 30, although uh, life expectancy was very low. And I uh, tell the story of the a situation where I saw uh, my young sister die uh, almost in front of my eyes because there was uh, really no uh, proper medical care that could be given to her. She had, was suffering in retrospect, I think, from appendicitis, uh, stomach issues. And uh, my father had traveled from Lahman, which is in eastern Afghanistan, to Mazar for opportunities. And he had walked or taken a horse uh, uh, when somebody could lend him a horse. He didn't have a horse of his own to travel. And there was a tradition at that time that if you left, uh, even to go from Lahman to Mazar, there was an expectation they might never see you again, given the, uh, the time that it took. And people uh, give you, uh, if you like, uh, 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 um, uh, 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 a prayer that meant that uh, this would be the last prayer that they could, one could do together with each other. So uh, uh, now, as I said, I had come to Kabul because my father was moved. He was a mid-level civil servant to, to, to Kabul. Uh, uh, and I uh, was uh, performing well in school, uh, and, and, and so uh, there was an American uh, uh, program called the American Field Service that brought uh, um, junior high school, uh, when you were junior in high school, to live with American families, and I won that. The, it was a competitive, uh, uh, you took written exams, oral exams, and so for my family, for me to go, uh, in a sense, to someone who had just left Mazar and uh, uh, a lot of my, my friends in Kabul used to tease me because I used to wear a caracol hat and I was a kind of a rural kid uh, to now be going to America after maybe 18 months in Kabul or less uh, was quite a shh. This was unbelievable and they, I don't, they probably believed that, uh, that I would not come back or they might not see me again. Uh, mind you, this is 1966, so it's a long time ago. The world has changed dramatically since even in Afghanistan. There's so much connectivity now uh, that coming to America is not a huge deal, but uh, then it was, a, it was just uh, uh, maybe 
this would, this would be the last time that they might see me. Uh, I think that was, uh, that was uh, uh, I mean, uh, at least my mother and others, they're crying and, and, uh, and uh, it was a sense that uh, uh, this was it, so to speak, perhaps. It's a powerful personal story and a powerful reminder that these kinds of programs that the U.S. has and see these kinds of places not only change lives, but can change also uh, uh, the face of America. The one thing uh, uh, that r really hit me and obviously hit you at the time, this is going back a little bit before you leave, uh, which is um, when you write about uh, the um, a big limousine uh, trying to get around a Chevy truck in front of it, and you talk about, uh, and you, you move to the Ford and the bus to see for yourself. The driver of the limo was opening the car's back door. Out stepped the well-dressed, bald, clean-shaven man. His bearing radiated arrogance and power. Dowd Khan gives you a sense of the writing as well. Yeah. My father, Dowd Khan, my father whispered, he's the king's cousin, husband of the king's sister, former prime minister. He ruled the country when the king was young. Face was full of rage. My jaw dropped as I watched him and his chauffeur drag the truck's driver out of his vehicle, throw him to the ground, and beat him and kick him senseless. You pleaded to your, uh, 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 to your parents that uh, we should do something. Your father agreed. Your father refused, as did others in the bus. Are you crazy? Do you know who the guy is? He could kill us. Dowd then moved toward the truck driver and bit off his left ear. Blood ran down his cheek and neck. The ear, bloodied and covered in spittle and dust, lay on the side of the road. I felt sick to my stomach. I was shocked by the injustice and brutality of a powerful figure abusing others with such impunity. And you said then that you thought back many times over your life to what you had seen and what the incident said about the country you loved. What did the, what did, you then don't answer that. What did that incident say, and why did it strike you so much, and, and so that you remembered it this many years later? Well, uh, this has uh, pained me uh, over uh, the course of my life that uh, here was a country, and this is a lesson for the United States and it too, in my view, that you can't take uh, being developed or on top for granted, uh, that you could be on top, uh, you could be the center of civilization, you could be uh, uh, doing great things, but uh, you know, if you don't do what's necessary, you could decline and become a brutal, uh, backward uh, uh, place. And I always used it when I was ambassador, and some of my friends are here with me, that I told the Afghans that I, in them I see the genes, the inheritance of some of the, the capacity, the ability to achieve great things, because that's what, if you go back long enough, you see it. Uh, and uh, then things can happen that make you uh, be so different that, uh, and, uh, well, I don't mean disrespect because I'm, uh, I'm part of them, but uh, uh, you know, people would come to me as ambassador to help uh, fix their offices or to build a school uh, that is a, uh, kind of a, a simple structure. And here were uh, uh, people who in America didn't exist, and I would tell them the story of America, of how uh, the, and this was the, the trip here was, uh, the initial trip was so, 
educational, uh, that uh, uh, they did such great things. They built magnificent uh, structures on their own. And there was no America, no Europe uh, going to, to, to assist. And, and uh, uh, in retrospect, uh, 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 the brutality that I saw in that incident, uh, of course, you, you saw it uh, uh, across. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, gentleness, uh, of poetry, of, uh, of, uh, of, of goodness and niceness, but there was also a great deal of brutality and that that come in uh, become part and parcel of life. Uh, and uh, I captured the, the story that how brutal that those at the top could be and, 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 and out on this incident uh, symbolized in my mind uh, that brutality that, that uh, become part and parcel uh, of, the, of the social structure. Yeah, and I think that is one of the moving things that's a strand through the book that you remind American officials that there was a great time of Afghan history yeah. where very often the conventional wisdom is that, that there wasn't. Not right. So I think Even more important. recently yeah. than the hundreds of years ago right. that from uh, the, to, the perception in the U.S. was that uh, Afghanistan has, had always been a place where uh, it was infighting, instability, no stability, tribes made up tribes, tribes uh, fighting each other, over everything that, no, uh, in fact, uh, it was a quite an orderly place. After all, the 20 of us or so, including um, uh, President Ashraf Ghani, who is now the president of Afghanistan, and uh, quite a few others, uh, when we came to an environment, uh, I mean, I see other Afghans here, uh, that where there was opportunity, uh, uh, I could say humbly, we did okay, yeah. uh, but, uh, um, but it was, the, the, the conditions uh, can make the person and the conditions somehow deteriorated in Afghanistan so much. Uh, even the 1930 to 19, I would say almost 78, 79 was mm -hmm. a, a relatively stable, although there was the 73 coup in Daoud Khan. The very person that I talked about here carried out a military coup with, uh, mm -hmm. some, with connections with pro-Soviet groups. Uh, that put Afghanistan on this uh, war trajectory that still unfortunately continues. The, um, uh, you know, you pass through your student period of the U.S. going to then Beirut, American University of Beirut. I'll, I'll pass over both of those for now. Um, but very interesting to see description of um, your confrontation with the Palestinian cause, how you start getting moved from that to your confrontation with pinball machines yeah. and, and the culture around pinball machines. Right. Um, you may want to comment on, on that, but let me skip to your time at the University of Chicago, because I think this is important for a lot of people in the room, particularly those starting their careers, where you were uh, heavily influenced by Professor Albert Wolstetter. Yes. Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about that and how that, how that shifted, yeah. uh, shifted your life. Uh, well. Uh, here is some lesson for uh, younger people in, in that, that sometimes accidents can play, uh, chance events can play a big role in your life. And uh, I come to University of Chicago from Beirut directly uh, to get my doctorate. And uh, I was interested in comparative politics, political philosophy, problems of epistemology. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, one day at the beginning of the uh, school year, uh, 
I, uh, my professor uh, just distributed the syllabus and said, come back next week. We'll actually have a lecture. As I walked back to go to the dorm, the international house, uh, uh, a friend that I had made uh, was uh, standing in the hall. And he said uh, his class is on a break, uh, and that uh, Albert Wolfstetter is a very unusual guy. He talks about President Kennedy as Jack, and he calls Kissinger Henry, and he's telling the stories of uh, how nuclear war and classical wars have what in common, what different. Why don't you come and listen to, it, uh, to him, uh, uh, the second part of that class, rather than go back to the dorm? And, and that uh, I agreed, and that had a huge effect um, on, my, on my trajectory. I became, uh, from a comparative politics problem of epistemology, uh, I became a, a, a kind of a strategist, if you like, uh, and uh, studied nuclear issues. Uh, Wolfstetter was a, a giant uh, in terms of his influence on American strategic thinking. Uh, during the Cold War, he was the father of first strike, second strike distinction. A lot of young people will remember there was a period where the Cold War and nuclear deterrence were huge uh, issues, defining issues, uh, life and death issues. And, and, and so I uh, uh, shifted completely uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, strategic issues and wrote and my you dissertation. Became a, you became his research assistant. Uh, uh, very quickly, yeah, yeah. and uh, worked for his company part-time called Panheuristics, which was a small RAND corporation in, on the West Coast. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, had a, he had a big, big impact on, on, on my life. Um, uh, the um, uh, jump ahead uh, to the... Um, 1979, I believe, the Soviet um, invasion of Afghanistan. Right. Um, you find yourself into the White House. You may want to talk a bit about that. Uh, the story that I found rich in this book was where uh, the leadership of Mujahideen rotates to a fundamentalist, Eunice Kallis. Uh, they haven't wanted to meet with President Reagan. Uh, finally, uh, there's a meeting brokered with Eunice Collis. Um, but they, uh, the fundamentalists and resistance leaders agreed that they could only meet with him if he brought the message of Islam to Reagan. Um, you then are, uh, by chance, the uh, interpreter, because uh, you had the security clearances to do that. Uh, and then um, and you rush to the Oval Office, seated between President Reagan and Collis, this uh, fundamentalist uh, Mujahideen. Um, and, uh, and Collis made his first remark. You whispered the translation quietly. Reagan asked you to say it louder. And so you translated, Islam is a religion of righteousness and peace. Um, and given its universal truth, Mr. Collis would like to invite you, Mr. President, to accept the religion of Islam. <laughs> um, uh, to which uh, the president answers, well, please tell Mr. Collis that we have our own religion. Uh, furthermore, today the struggle is between believers and non-believers. As fellow believers, we are on the same side. We are with you in your struggle against the Soviet Union. That's pretty quick reaction. So first of all, what an incredible moment to be witness to 
what was it like working with President Reagan at the time that the Soviets were sitting inside Afghanistan after the invasion? Well, first I have to say uh, uh, quickly that uh, I won a fellowship uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations as a young assistant professor at Columbia University uh, to come and learn uh, to be deployed in Washington to learn about how uh, policies actually made because I was teaching American foreign policy, nuclear strategy, uh, 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 and so forth. And, uh, 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 and I was assigned to the Defense Department to work with Freddie Clay, who was our Undersecretary of Defense at that time. And one day he comes uh, and says, Zal, I traded you. And uh, he had lunch with his counterpart, Mike Armacost, uh, who was the Undersecretary for Policy at State or Political Affairs. And uh, uh, what happened, and he said, uh, uh, you know, your name somehow came up because somebody, you or someone in, the, uh, in one of the, uh, their articles quoted me on something. And it must have been. It, yes, yeah. it, it could be. <laughs> so you had a, a dramatic effect. And I said, yeah. well, we have hundreds of people who can work on nuclear issues, because that's what I was working with Freddie Clay on. Uh, we need someone who knows about Afghanistan. And this wasn't Zal born in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, and and, and, and uh, he said, I traded you. So I ended up not <laughs> being able to overcome my, uh, uh, my uh, place of birth. So I had to go and work on Afghanistan uh, with him. And, and during the course of that work, uh, one, uh, one uh, event is that uh, clearly the United States assumed at the beginning and this is a lesson for younger uh, analytic types, uh, that uh, uh, the Soviets would prevail ultimately in Afghanistan. That was the dominant assumption. And that the US objective was to help Afghans inflict huge costs on the Soviets so the Soviets would be deterred from repeating that policy elsewhere. But we, uh, we, uh, we achieved uh, uh, more than we had actually uh, assumed we could achieve with the Soviets uh, withdrawing. Uh, but uh, the Mujahideen were extremely popular in Washington. The assistance to the Mujahideen was very popular. We didn't think much about post-Soviet Afghanistan, so whoever wanted to fight the Soviets, we helped. And, uh, and uh, we worked with Pakistan closely because we had to distribute uh, the assistance through Pakistan and the Pakistani military, military intelligence preferred the more Islamist uh, groups over uh, more nationalist and moderates. And, uh, and uh, uh, before going to uh, Geneva for a meeting with uh, Gorbachev, uh, President Reagan asked uh, if uh, the Afghan leadership that we were helping so much would come and visit. And uh, the initial one that was supposed to come was uh, Mr. Hekmatyar, who was the leader of the alliance. He refused. In fact, there's interesting stories about uh, the, the, the effort to convince him to come. But then uh, Hekmatyar and some of his friends set up Mr. Khalis, uh, um, who accepted to come to, to do this. President Reagan, I didn't know him very well because I actually didn't work for him direct. I worked for Secretary Schultz. I was a member of his planning council and a special advisor uh, to the undersecretary. But he so disarmed this man, uh, uh, Mr. Hollis, with the remark that you read. And then he gave such a passionate statement in support of the Afghan resistance uh, that as I was interpreting the leader of the Afghan resistance, this very tough, colorful guy, 
uh, ask if we could have a copy of the president's statement immediately. So I went over there, uh, and this is a lot of press and uh, a lot of uh, the, all the cabinet, key cabinet members, the vice president, uh, congressional leadership, uh, all sitting there. And I am going back and forth uh, saying, Mr. President, the leader of the Afghan resistance would like a, uh, your statement if he could have it as a, a, a memorial that he could keep with him and take it back to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he said, well, OK. So he, he, he took a little note that he had on top of the talking points away. And with his handwritten uh, messages all over the speech, he gave it to, uh, the, uh, to the Afghan the leader, the original. <laughs> and Secretary Shul was asking me later on, Zal, what the hell were you doing there? <laughs> Going back and forth. I said, I just got a commitment for 100 more stingers uh, over on the president to bypass the process. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, so is history made. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, at the end of this chapter, um, you uh, talk about the tragic aftermath of the Soviet-Afghan war and how avoidable you thought it was. Um, uh, so maybe we know about that, but maybe fast forward to now. Um, you said, we failed to form a broad-based transitional government, which could have empowered moderate forces and avoided Afghanistan's collapse in the civil war. Inertia led us to support Pakistan's preferred option of a military solution, et cetera, et cetera. These failures imposed an enormous cost and culminated in the attacks of 9-11. Um, was it lack of vision? Was it we were exhausted, we were moving on? Why did we get that wrong now? And are we in danger of doing that with Afghanistan again now? Different time. We know history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And, and so, you know, um, uh, uh, the, the factors that you saw then is a danger now. What some people are talking about is a Charlie Wilson, too. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, very important point, again, analytically. First, uh, at the beginning of something big, don't assume you know the outcome. Uh, and we assumed uh, at the beginning that the Soviets would prevail. And then when it, uh, it was a reasonable assumption, given the size of the Soviet Union, this little Afghanistan, but turned out to be wrong. Uh, and uh, uh, once we discovered that it was wrong, then a struggle started inside the bureaucracy. Uh, uh, and I was very active in that uh, uh, struggle and, uh, uh, to adjust. Uh, uh, and, but adjustment is also not easy uh, once you, you have set a course in which you have invested a lot. Mm -hmm. It takes uh, strong leadership uh, at a very high level uh, to adjust. Uh, because uh, especially that you believe that the course that you are on has given you a big success. Uh, the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan was regarded to be a huge success. Uh, and he, but for the next phase, of, for the sake of Afghanistan, and ultimately for ourselves, as we saw in 9-11, an adjustment was necessary uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, put a government together uh, uh, that would have prevented what happened, which is the Mujahideen groups then fought for Afghanistan after the Soviets uh, had left and the Najib government had collapsed. And we then, by then, got disillusioned. Uh, we had uh, achieved the big objective, the Soviets uh, suffering, and then being uh, forced to withdraw. 
and maybe Afghanistan helped uh, with the disintegration even uh, of the Soviet Union. If the Soviet disintegration was as a result of Soviet problems, Afghanistan added to those problems. But then uh, uh, the, when Afghanistan became more of fight each other, we uh, disengaged. And, uh, and I think that uh, 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 one lesson is that in some places, we are good at counterpunching yeah. uh, and not in terms of long-term shaping and remaining engaged. And this, uh, this was the tragedy of Afghanistan. Uh, um, uh, I, I thought uh, uh, from 1987 that we should begin to adjust. Uh, as soon as the, there was an indication of Soviet withdrawal, that we needed to adjust, we needed to appoint a, a someone to deal directly with the Afghans rather than uh, working through our ambassador in Islamabad to work with them. Because I thought that our ambassador in Islamabad, uh, whether he wined and dined with the Pakistani generals, I thought that's what the essential job is, to deal with Pakistanis, ambassador to Pakistan, and Afghan kind of concerns become secondary. and. Uh, I was approached whether I would uh, play that role at that time, and I said I would if I would have control of the covert program, uh, and which was a leverage, uh, 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 the, 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 the uh, kind of currency of the of the of the influence of that time, and when that was uh, because our ambassador in uh, Islamabad insisted on having control over the program, I said I would just be kind of seen as a, as a nice person to talk to, but without the ability to, 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 to help or hurt. And, that, uh, uh, and I think that was a, 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 a one of those periods where uh, who knows what would have happened, what the unintended or intended, uh, whether we would have succeeded and what the consequences would have been. But I thought uh, uh, there was, a, was a, 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 an important a period where perhaps a different approach to put something together uh, would have been worth trying. Uh, and we didn't, we, we, we said we have this horse that we're on gave us this victory, we need to continue to ride it. And uh, by riding it, when it didn't produce the kind of results we wanted after a while, then we withdrew, we re kind of disengaged. And that disengagement had grave consequences. Lesson for Afghanistan today? Well, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, I know that it's very unpopular right now politically uh, to uh, do state building, nation building, which takes time, a lot of effort. But I'm of the view, after thinking a lot about these issues over many uh, years, thinking about the book, that when you have a piece of territory that you need it controlled by friendly forces because it, uh, it solves, it deals with a strategic problem, uh, then I don't see any uh, better option than helping friendly forces uh, manage that territory, control it. Uh, because uh, uh, if our goal is that for solving the terrorist problem to Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to the United States, this Afghanistan territory should be controlled by friendly forces. Because the alternative is we control it, all the other alternatives, the, the bad guys come back and we said we don't want that, then uh, state and nation building is the only realistic option uh, that I see to us, which is much more expensive being in control. And so therefore I think uh, uh, I'm an advocate of, a, uh, of, a, of 
staying the course and helping and adjusting as necessary in Afghanistan with the help of our allies uh, in, uh, because I think uh, if we don't, we may have to go back again uh, uh, because uh, we know what will happen. It, it's, it's sort of, it's not as if we haven't had the experience right. of what, is, what happens when we disengage. So we have to do smartly. I don't advocate mindless nation building anywhere and everywhere, uh, but uh, when there is a strategic ter uh, a, a territory where you have a strategic issue, you need it controlled by friendly forces. Uh, we have to do it, and we've done it in other places. Sometimes we self-flagellate a little bit too much that we don't know what to do, and we haven't mm -hmm. done it well. We, we can do it. We have done it. Sorry, I went post, a little post, long no, on that. No, post-World War II Europe, for Europe, sure. Japan, yeah, Korea, absolutely. you name it, uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, and in uh, you know, Eastern Europe uh, after the Cold War, all that, yeah. Um, I don't want to go too much in depth on the next couple of things because I do want to get to questions from the audience. But uh, the issue of how you look at the fall of the Soviet Union and then the opportunities we had then to exercise lead leadership and expand the liberal international order, which we didn't take and which the Atlantic Council is now working on now again, um, is worth reading. Um, uh, I wonder if you can tell us uh, Briefly, what Khaligzad 95 is. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, uh, you know, uh, when I uh, was uh, head of policy planning in the Department of Defense, and uh, uh, you should be a policy planner when big things are happening, because if the world is moving on uh, in a normal pace, being a policy planner is not that much fun because the operators uh, run things, uh, and you can make uh, comments from the side. But when I was at DOD, the two big events happened, the disintegration of the Soviet Union and then the uh, Gulf War. And in the aftermath of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, I was tasked, along with a few others, to, by the Secretary of Defense, then Dick Cheney, what do we do now, kind of thing, you know, the, for 40 years or plus. Uh, the, the Soviet-American competition was the defining issue and the defense planning was largely focused uh, on that. So we came up with the idea that we need to, uh, uh, to preserve uh, the order, the post-Cold War order, uh, a return to multipolarity, uh, even bipolarity would be riskier, more dangerous than, than what had happened after that period. And in order to, uh, to uh, preserve this order and preclude uh, a more dangerous world and that uh, the, the zone of democracy and peace uh, needed to expand in Europe to include uh, the newly freed East European countries uh, into that zone uh, and similar ideas about the Middle East and so forth. And uh, when I left the government, I did a set of articles uh, advocating some of the ideas and the young people in high schools who debated uh, international issues used uh, my argument as a card uh, uh, in their debates, and, and they tell me that was a kind of a winning card to use. So I had a, a large number of high school followers for a while. Uh, that is uh, Khalilzad 95. 
uh, <laughs> a card that was played in high school debates. But, but though you were able to get high school followers in the administration, <laughs> the, idea, no, the, the idea did not win the day. The idea did not win the day in a, uh, in a, in a public way, yeah, yeah. but materially, Many of the ideas, uh, I think, uh, uh, such as NATO expansion and, 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 and uh, 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 some of the other core ideas uh, were embraced by people who were initially skeptical, uh, uh, then was embraced. Uh, and uh, we had people who were involved in, in, in the formulation of that doctrine or that policy that later on became extremely influential people in various uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations uh, who then uh, were uh, operationalizing some of those ideas. Yeah, I, I must say, uh, reading these pages uh, and, and other uh, excellent um, memoirs of, of public officials, some of the most interesting parts are the infighting, the bureaucratic struggles sure. that end up having uh, huge consequences. Right. So I'm going to skip some area and go to Iraq, since uh, that's such a, uh, uh, a fraught issue. Um, and you talk about how we went from liberation to occupation, and particularly a, a very interesting decision uh, that seemed to be more of a bureaucratic decision. You talk about in the chapter and also in the foreword, uh, where um, uh, where uh, there was a decision about whether both you and Paul Bremer go to Iraq or not. Talk a little bit about how that decision made, but then also what are the consequences of this sort of bureaucratic sure, decision? Sure, uh, There was a period, uh, uh, I see Ambassador Jawad uh, in the audience uh, when uh, he was the chief of staff of President uh, uh, Karzai, that I was a special envoy of the president, both to uh, Afghanistan and to uh, the Iraqi, free Iraqis, it was called. And I had began uh, way before the invasion, like in, uh, the end of 2002, uh, to uh, talk to the Iraqis uh, who were free already, but they were not under control of Saddam Hussein, about the possibility that the United States could use force against Saddam if uh, the issues that were in play were not resolved satisfactorily. At the end, the president might uh, de decide to do that. And the fact that the president had asked me to do this, uh, given my responsibilities in the National Security Council, I was still a, a special assistant to him and senior director for the whole of the Middle East and Southwest Asia, and envoy to Afghanistan that he, in addition, put Iraq, uh, that was my first uh, uh, conclusion in my head that this is serious. Uh, because uh, I know President Karzai wasn't happy that I was uh, gone for uh, long periods of time, not coming to Afghanistan, dealing with Iraqis. Uh, and I began to talk to the Iraqi opposition figures about what if uh, happens, what do they need to do to be ready that, uh, to take advantage of the opportunity that will be presented uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, the Iraqis? And uh, the strategy as developed was uh, that uh, although there was some ambivalence here and there, uh, uh, that we would turn over, as in the case of Afghanistan, uh, quickly to uh, Iraqis uh, running Iraq, and uh, uh, and that I would 
be the one to, uh, based on my experience in Afghanistan, help the Iraqis achieve the same goal. Instead of bond where the agreement on Afghanistan was made, there will be a council in Baghdad that would include the exiles, including the Kurds, who were regarded as exiles, which I never understood. But uh, nevertheless, we put them among the exiles. And uh, 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 the internal Iraqis that would be available for us to engage after liberation, after the overthrow. And then there will be a, a kind of a Loe Jirga uh, importing from Afghanistan in Baghdad, the council of, of relevant people to appoint an interim authority. And, and uh, uh, after uh, liberation, uh, I, I, uh, I went to Baghdad uh, with General Garner and Nasriya, uh, who was appointed by the DOD. But then the president uh, sent uh, uh, Ambassador Bremer uh, to, uh, uh, all of a sudden things changed in Washington and I was in Baghdad when I heard first that uh, there was the occupation and then there would be maybe Ambassador Bremer. But when I arrived in Washington to find out what was going on, the president and Condi Rice both told me, uh, you're going back uh, also. I said, uh, and, and that w there will be two presidential envoys, uh, one Mr. Bremer, one myself. I would be in charge of forming the helping Iraqis form the government. Uh, and uh, within a, uh, you know, an hour before I was supposed to go to the Oval Office with Ambassador Bremer, who President Bush had not met before, and he wanted to see him before announcing the decision, uh, and that I was told, uh, uh, yeah, you can come to the Oval Office. The president wants you to come, but the, the only one person will go, uh, would be Ambassador Bremer. And uh, the, sort of the whole idea of, uh, of uh, kind of forming a government very quickly, which was the goal, was put aside. And uh, Ambassador Bremer uh, went uh, and in occupation, indefinite occupation uh, decision was made. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, then, of course, dissolving the army and uh, deep debatification and the political debat uh, implementation by a political group of the debatification uh, were decisions that were made. And I it took some time, uh, in terms of the book, uh, to try to understand really what had happened because uh, 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 although I was one of the players, so to speak, at the lower level, and I was mostly in the field in those days, either in Afghanistan or in Iraq, as to uh, what had happened in, in Washington. And I talked to President Bush, and I talked to Colin Powell, I talked to Rami, Secretary Rumsfeld, and I talked to, uh, uh, obviously, Condi Rice, and I talked to Steve Hadley. All my good friends uh, with whom I have worked over many, many years as to if they could enlighten me as to what, uh, what really happened so I, uh, so I get it right for the book and I explain all of that uh, in the book. But that decision and the subsequent uh, steps taken had a huge effect. I think some of the, maybe Iraq would have been difficult in any case, but I think what the decisions we made and the decisions we didn't make made it uh, very, uh, very difficult for, uh, for ourselves and for the Iraqis. So, so I'll, it's clear in the book you disagree with the decision that was made uh, to be occupation. Not because, I mean, I no. hope uh, people say no, no, not no, because I, I didn't go, because I, I think that was the right decision, in my view, 
to send one presidential envoy to right. in the same territory is a little difficult, like having two ambassadors uh, to, to the same place. So the chain of command, and I, I, the president explained it to but me. But what you disagreed with was yes. the longer term occupation rather I, than a quick transition. I absolutely disagree, and I made it clear that I did, dis I did uh, disagree with that. And for uh, not having a, a, a government form very quickly and all that. How, how do you explain um, that at the time of the invasion, March 20th of 2003, that there was still so much disagreement, you even call senior policymakers in Washington were schizophrenic, on the question of uh, how quickly to transfer authority, whether to have an interim agreement, whether not to. It seems to be high stakes yes. for the US government without actually having thought out what your next step is. How do you explain that? I thought myself uh, uh, that uh, uh, the decisions had been made. Uh, uh, there was schizophrenia, but the decisions that may had been made. But let me say, take advantage of this as I think yeah. about it, of say something about the Na uh, National Security Council process that may be of use to, especially the young people, uh, which is that there are various models of uh, how decision making is, uh, takes place in the National Security Council. One model is uh, to uh, build consensus at the principles level and uh, for the National Security Council uh, presented to the president for his uh, blessing, approval or disapproval. Another uh, model uh, uh, is uh, some have associated it with Scowcroft period, some have associated with President Eisenhower period, which is that you present options to the president rather than consensus, uh, uh, to achieve consensus. Mm. Uh, and consensus sometimes means you paper over differences. Uh, and uh, everyone thinks their position of what they advocated survived because some words were taken from their recommended course of action and some words were taken from the other uh, sides uh, uh, course of action. And uh, I think there was uh, some schizophrenia, but the decision, as I understood them, and there may have been various words in there, but I un as I understood them was that we wouldn't occupy. In fact, I gave a speech to Nas in a Nasiriya conference where was still we had fighting going on in Iraq, and it was General Garner, I landed. Uh, uh, the sunstorm uh, uh, in Nasiriyah and to meet the internal Iraqis. And my statement was cleared by the President of the United States. It's, uh, and, uh, and it was published in uh, Wall Street Journal as an op-ed the next day, in which I said, we have no intention, absolutely no intention of ruling Iraq. Uh, 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 and uh, the President, uh, the uh, day before, uh, this uh, uh, announcement, uh, 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 and I used to sit as a junior person behind them to his right to be the guy who wrote the summary and conclusions of these meetings, uh, said to Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, Rami, it's clear, although the Pentagon had the lead on Iraq, that on government it is all. Uh, so we understand each other. This is uh, to conclude uh, the meeting. Uh, but uh, 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 we change our mind afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and the changing of the mind came, I think, uh, uh, I've asked the president about this, President Bush, before finalizing the book. Bec a perception developed that the Iraqis were not ready for self-government. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, 
Uh, and then I think a, a concept was presented to the president, perhaps, which uh, indicated that uh, we needed to do in Iraq what we did in Japan uh, and to do a big transformation. And that requires uh, the required occupation. And I think Colin Powell also probably convinced the president that in order to get UN help, it had to be, uh, the UN is asking under which authority are you uh, there, since there was no UN resolution. Mm. And the only legal authority that you have is under the laws of occupation. Mm. And that therefore you have to assert that as to get UN help. So uh, I think all of that. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately helped. But what I think went wrong is that uh, uh, when the, uh, Mr. Brammer uh, made some of the statements that he did, there is uh, uh, no clear clarity uh, as to in which National Security Council meeting the decision was approved to dissolve the army or do the deep depathification. There is no summary and conclusions that I could find. And these big leaders like uh, Secretary Powell and uh, Rumsfeld and others uh, disengaged to a degree that is, uh, that is uh, uh, disconcerting to me, although, as I said, they're my friends and I respect them immensely. They're great Americans. That because Bremer spent an hour and 45 minutes alone with the president, that had a, a freezing effect on these principles because they assumed that uh, since Bremer spent time uh, with the president alone, that he must have approval for all of the, uh, the things that he did from the president. This kind of discouraged him from questioning the decision and asserting, have you th thought about the consequences of this? And uh, uh, what would the effects be? Uh, and I think that one lesson is that the president of the United States should not meet with a subordinate of a cabinet member in a war zone without the uh, principal being in the room. Uh, because <laughs> Rami fought, yeah. uh, with all the respect, I, I regard for him, we are good friends. He fought to take control of Iraq policy, Secretary mm. Rumsfeld. And then once the president did what he did, he said he's not working for me anymore. Uh, he's working for the White House this, now. This is why this is such a wonderful book. And, and here he says, if Bremer's account is correct, in that moment, President Bush, without consulting the principals, reversed his earlier decision to establish an interim Iraqi authority. It's great history. Uh, I, I'm, just one last question for me um, uh, uh, before I go to uh, the, uh, the audience here for their uh, questions. Um, I'm not going to do the last part of the book credit sure your ambassadorial positions. In general, this is called the envoy. What does it take to be a successful envoy? And I know it's quite different, Afghanistan, Iraq, and sure. the UN. Right. But are there, some, some, are there some general conclusions you can take from your sure. time in these three incredibly important, but very different positions? Very different. I would say that, uh, really, I want to say something. Uh, and uh, I'm actually writing some pieces, uh, drawing on the book. Uh, for lessons uh, for future diplomats on a, r a range of issues. But I think in the war zones, that's what we're talking about, Afghanistan and Iraq, there are some lessons to be learned and some things, uh, we have some strengths and some weaknesses that need to be addressed. One is it's extremely important that there is integration of civil military uh, integration and that the ambassador uh, and the general uh, are, 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 are 
uh, have a clear understanding of a, of a, of a division of responsibility uh, in the kind of in the insurgency kind of war that uh, you operate, because there are a lot of po politics that is extremely important to shape uh, events, and there is some uh, the role of the military is obviously critical uh, uh, as well. And I think that uh, uh, I was lucky in Afghanistan and Iraq. I had good colleagues. Uh, General Barno in Afghanistan was a great uh, uh, comrade in arms. But we need to have. Uh, 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 we, we really don't have a Goldwater-Nichols equivalent, which is, we have it for uh, the military integration, but we don't have a civil military integration. So when I was there, for example, General Borno in his office, I see uh, David Grizzle, uh, who was uh, one of my colleagues there, uh, that his office was right next to my office. He lived in the embassy compound. He attended my morning meetings. He, he consulted me before he did military operations if he was in charge of them. Uh, I could say, I could go as far as to say he was subordinate a little bit to me. Uh, 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 he acted as if he was. But that was his personal uh, uh, relationship with me that he did that. When I left and the new team came, I understand that the general left the compound, went to his, uh, his military headquarters. I remember the f I was still there when the new guy came. I didn't see him in the morning meeting, so I called him. I said, well, uh, I'm sorry to say I didn't see you this morning in the staff meeting. <laughs> and he said, what? I'm, I, 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 I'm not part of the embassy. I said, you are, actually. If you want, I could get you instructions from Washington <laughs> to that effect. <laughs> so, so he showed up. But as soon as I left, he left, because he would want as his own. Uh, you know, fiefdom and all the rest, which is, is perfectly legitimate. So I think we need a, a review mm. uh, that uh, that the, the relationship is clarified. Maybe sometimes the military has to be the lead, sometimes the ambassador has to be the lead, but it has to be integrated, mm. and that's very vital. Uh, th there's quite a few other lessons, so, uh, and maybe uh, uh, I will be doing uh, uh, several pieces on this. I think yeah. there's a lot to be learned about. Uh, you know, we still don't know, uh, uh, although state building, nation building, we have to build army, help build army, build uh, police forces. We don't have uh, units who have expertise uh, who are ready to be deployed to do these things. Uh, right now, we are thinking we don't, we will never do this again, but believe me, we will uh, do it again. But imagine if ISIS takes over Damascus. You think we will not, uh, we will just sit and say, uh, Okay, or Eastern Saudi Arabia is taken over by ISIS. Uh, yeah. Will we say, well, we, we've decided we're not gonna. There, there are scenarios in which we would, so therefore I think the lessons learned from the experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan will still be relevant and there is a lot to be learned. And, 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 and the book uh, has it and I, I'm gonna pick up uh, those reforms, especially given the election context, to, although there may not be much interest to put it in the agenda. The, we'd, be, we'd be happy to be party to publishing those, uh, that, that, that work. Thank that you. would be fantastic. Thank you. Uh, questions from the audience? Uh, please, uh, back here and uh, identify yourself. Um, and we'll, get around, we'll get to as many questions as we can. Well, Mr. Mirzad is a, not only a distinguished Afghan, he's a distinguished American who helped uh, 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 me a lot in Afghanistan. He's the, he knows more about the minerals of Afghanistan than anyone alive, uh, uh, anyone else. Thank you. I bought the book. Thank you. And, sir, I will read it. Thank you. But I have a question. What are the mistakes that we 
made that should not be repeated in expecting different results in Afghanistan, especially economically. Mistakes made in Afghanistan that should not be repeated, particularly economically. Okay. I think the biggest uh, mistake uh, or, or uh, weakness has been that we didn't have, and we, I, I, I dare say we do not have in our institution, uh, and although there are great people, and I see colleagues who have served with distinction in USAID uh, uh, and helped Afghans uh, and Iraqis a lot, but when I went there, uh, to Afghanistan, there was a clear roadmap for the political transition, constitution, uh, interim authority to transitional authority, constitution, uh, constitution loyal jerga, presidential election, warlord strategy, DDR strategy, all the political things that uh, we needed to do. Rightly or wrongly, but there was a conception and steps that that conception involved. I must say that on the economic development of Afghanistan, as to here is a country like Afghanistan or Iraq where you are uh, uh, essentially the dominant player, external player, and you are working with locals. How do you make a country like that stand on its feet? What's the theory? What's the concept? What do you have to do first? What do you have to do second? Why am I doing this first? Uh, I would argue with my mission directors. I had several good ones, argue with them. Why am I building 400 uh, uh, schools, 300 clinics? Where, where did these numbers come from? I, I, and why am I not doing uh, something else? Why am I not doing agriculture, test of the soil? Or what is Afghanistan good at producing? And why am I not investing in that? Or why am I not doing infrastructure first? And, and uh, they would respond to political pressures in Washington. President Karzai asked somebody to build roads, so they said, okay, we'll build uh, Kabul Kandahar Road. So I think one, uh, one the, uh, area where what lesson that I uh, have here is that we, uh, I mean, USAID is excellent in, uh, in humanitarian assistance, and it has done a lot to help Afghanistan. There is a lot of Afghans live longer because of our programs, women's empowerment, uh, education, I mean, we've done a lot, but, but how do you do a free market-oriented development of a poor country that you've taken charge of? Uh, there was no uh, concept such as the one that the leader of Singapore had, that you have to get four things first right, so to speak, and uh, in order to bring about economic development, we didn't have that. And I was constantly struggling. Uh, and you know that because you are part of these discussions as to whether we should invest in Afghanistan's minerals. Should we do even a survey? Uh, if you remember how hard it was to get $5 million, how much was it to, to get your project uh, going? So uh, that is, a, uh, uh, I think, a, a weakness uh, that we have as to how do you do free market-oriented economic development of a country that you have become building a sustainable uh, economic economy system. that's going to go. Yeah. Ambassador, I've got lots of questions, so I'll try to pick up. Uh, I'll try to pick uh, up. Let me let me take thank two. Thank you, Ambassador. Let me uh, uh, let's take two at a time. I'll take one here and one here. Ambassador, yeah. it's very interesting to hear all the oh, discussions. Thank you for coming. And actually, I bought the book, and I'll take another one probably on the May 3rd, uh, so I can you. give it as a present. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very um, much. It's very interesting to look at how would you 
do your job being as American ambassador in your country. Right, because this course. is how it looks yeah, like. Sure, and absolutely. how do you keep the interest? You know, you are more American or Afghan when right. you do your job. That's sure. what I would like to hear. Well, and, then, and then let me pick up, let me pick up, let me pick up a second one. We'll okay. take two at a time here, please. Mr. Ambassador, I have a couple of uh, short questions. Uh, uh, one of them is that uh, when the Taliban came into power in 1995, we can say, or 96, why is it that not many countries uh, oppose their government outrightly, uh, like sure. strongly? Uh, my second question is, uh, was the killing of uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud and 911 was it coincident that it happened uh, very close to sure. each other? Thank you. Uh, last question. Yes, sir. Why was Mr. Oh. Karzai appointed twice as president, despite the fact that he had no experience in running a government sure. and who did not enjoy a very uh, honest government? Or Thank you very much. That was cheating, but that's okay. Three they were, questions. They were, they were good, but they were good. But they were good questions. Very good questions. They, the, the one you must be an Afghan. <laughs> so, so I'll, I'll let you take. I'll let, I'll let you take on these questions, but I will let you into something that uh, that we talked about before coming in here, which is the uh, uh, the assassins, the people who killed yeah. Masoud, were from Molenbeek, uh, yes. from Belgium. Mm -hmm. uh, one, uh, one Moroccan, one Tunisian, I believe. Yes. So, I mean, it started a long time ago. But. I was quite clear. I mean, uh, oh, first of all, in a little anecdote. When President Bush asked me to go to Afghanistan, uh, as uh, initially, I, I, I was a little startled, saying, that Mr. President, uh, uh, remember, I left there, and I am I'm here. Why? What did I do that you want to send me back? It was a kind of a joke. He would, and and he said, "Oh, Zal, they're gonna love you," and so forth. They'll go. And I said, uh, uh, <laughs> so I, "Then he said, well, go as an envoy, uh, so you can still go, be in Washington, go back and forth." And uh, and. Uh, I was quite clear what my job as the American ambassador was and what my responsibilities were. And, uh, and, and, and the fact that I had very close relationship with the president, with the principals, because of my earlier work, was helpful to me. But I, uh, and I knew what that job, uh, what I had to accomplish, uh, my mission, uh, so to speak. Uh, that was good. But I also never forgot where I was born and uh, what uh, my roots were and what my responsibilities were in that regard uh, also. But whenever I played uh, based on my other uh, kind of sentiments and responsibilities, I made it clear to the Afghans that now I was, uh, as Ambassador Jawad would uh, recall, I would say now I'm putting the other hat on. So, uh, so though everybody knew that now I was admonishing them or uh, pleading with them or working hard with them to that they had a historic responsibility for the sake of generations that have passed uh, and generations to come uh, that uh, you know my American responsibilities okay we, we need to solve this or that or the tactical issues that day to day as you deal with uh, the Washington a visit is coming or this or that but I would uh, share with them uh, from the depth of my conviction, what their responsibilities were, and I could do it in a way that perhaps as a, a purely American ambassador might have uh, 
uh, offended them, perhaps, but, uh, but I reminded them of, uh, of, of, of who I was also and what that meant as to, as to uh, how I felt. Uh, but I didn't see ever a tension or a conflict uh, because I believe that uh, and President Bush's mission to me was we want Afghanistan to, to succeed because of the success of Afghanistan, we can prevent Afghanistan from going back to becoming a terrorist base. So, uh, uh, but I did use the fact of my, uh, that I uh, had come from Afghanistan and I was born there to, uh, in, in, uh, I don't know what, how effective it was or not that others would have to judge, but I, I, did, I did not demur from uh, stating that very clearly to them that they had responsibilities, therefore. Mm. Yeah. And oh, the, and on yeah. the three questions, yeah. very quickly. Uh, 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 on the Taliban, uh, why there was uh, not opposition to them, I think that initially, even myself included, and I have to uh, acknowledge uh, my own uh, mistake, uh, I, uh, uh, people were so, including those who cared for Afghanistan, so tired of the civil war. Uh, this destruction of Kabul that happened in the war among the Mujahideen and the pictures of Kabul, heartbreaking pictures of Kabul. You know, my own house where I uh, lived had been destroyed. My school, uh, Ghazi High School that I went to school before coming to America had been destroyed, only a wall stood. Yeah. And so people were uh, uh, perhaps uh, wishful thinking, thought that uh, this uh, Taliban and their sponsors were very clever in terms of the initial packaging, that what they wanted was the Loe Jirga to be convened. They wanted to collect the arms. Uh, they wanted the king to come back. And I remember talking to people around the former kings who uh, the king even had bought some suits and so forth, prepared to go back. Uh, but as they took over Kabul uh, and the actions that they took changed the attitude uh, more, uh, more broadly. Uh, and the U.S. also, in particular on the women's rights issues, it developed uh, a momentum. Not that the U.S. would have gone to war in Afghanistan because of those issues if 9-11 hadn't happened, but there was growing then opposition as they took over Kabul and the world became aware of the contents of their belief. On President Karzai, uh, we accepted in, in, in uh, Bonn uh, a, a formula for how the leader of Afghanistan would be selected. And the formula was that the nomination will come from uh, the, what was called the Rome Group, which were people around Zahir Shah, because uh, the assumption was that the Pashtuns being the largest group in Afghanistan, as under the king, the king nominated the prime minister, parliament approved. The Taliban were not in, in Bonn that the king's group uh, substituting or speak on behalf of the uh, uh, Afghans, uh, particularly Pashtun Afghans, they would nominate, but the other groups would uh, uh, have to go along. They were a kind of parliament, the other three, they had to go along. And as you know, initially Karzai was not nominated by the Rome group, uh, Mr. Sirat was, but the other groups did not accept uh, him as the uh, uh, as acceptable candidates until Karzai's name was raised, but it's surprising that a lot of the neighboring countries and others thought they had no objection to President Karzai. 
I disagree with you on one thing with regard to President Karzai, although uh, you know he's a, he's, a, he's a friend of mine, so I have to say that also, as, as, as is the current president, um, but uh, uh, that he was at one point extremely popular. Uh, it would be a mistake to assume that he was never popular. I think the Afghans looked with favor to the uh, post-Rome uh, government. There was a lot of positive uh, uh, feelings. Uh, I think President Karzai had some positive attributes uh, in terms of how he communicated, how he related to the people of Afghanistan. He had some weaknesses, uh, too. Uh, I think uh, uh, he was not a state builder or a nation builder. Uh, he wanted the United States to take full responsibility. Uh, he would tell me, and I, I don't know whether I have it in the book, you fix our problems, you know, build the roads and the schools and the clinics, make us uh, like the old days where Afghanistan worked. And in exchange, I will give you whatever bases you want. Do you want uh, bases in Afghanistan? I will give you permanent bases. Let's have a deal here. You f fix our problems, uh, I'll give you access. Uh, and, uh, but uh, over time, I think our handling of Pakistan uh, was problematic and that created distrust, and on top of that, other things uh, that the relationship got uh, more difficult. Uh, but I think in the initial period when I was ambassador, he was a very, he was an excellent partner, I, I have to say. Uh, uh, um, I think, as I said, Jawad is sitting right behind you as the chief, as chief of staff. I had, uh, I had no, uh, uh, I think whatever we argued or so, but at the end of the day, I thought he did the right thing. Sorry. Uh, so, so we're going to run out of time, so I'm just going to take these last two questions here, and then we'll close. Thank you. Please. And then please stay on for the reception, uh, and I think, Zal, maybe you'll take some time to sign a book or two. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Khalid Zal. I'm Rahul Osmani, a visiting scholar from SAIS. It's a pleasure to attend that. And congratulations on your book, and thank look you. forward to not reading it and also sharing with students at SAIS. Thank you. Uh, uh, Talking about the current situation, uh, you know, looking at the current debate in the United States between Republican and Democrat, uh, as uh, a lot of us noticed, there is less uh, discussion on foreign policy, especially uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan overall region. I'm wondering how that concerned you as someone who have invested in that region, not talking too much on uh, about Afghanistan or um, that region as a whole. Uh, and uh, what's your prediction beyond this media discussion or debate that you see if you're in touch with the, the candidates right now, which we do not hear, uh, if you may like to share that? And then one last question. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. My name is Namo Abdullah. I'm with Ruda, which is Kurdistan's news agency. Uh, as you talked about the occupation to liberation, I remember back then I was in Kurdistan, the Kurdish leaders got angry at the Bush administration for calling it occupation, not liberation, because the Kurds were so pro-American and so happy with the removal of Saddam Hussein that they thought it was still a liberation. So uh, now my question is actually related to today. Uh, as, as a very experienced envoy in Iraq who continues to have good relations with the Kurdish leaders, do you believe they're right when they say Iraq has ceased to exist as a united entity and they will separate from the country? Very, very good final two questions. The only thing I will do is also refer you to the last chapter, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, and just read you a paragraph here. Uh, we face a broader, uh, this is uh, Ambassador Khalid Zad talking about the future and the 
chapter is called A More Dangerous World. We face a broader internal issue, the failure of the United States to achieve bipartisan consensus behind a grand strategy after containment. We are missing a clear sense of priorities and an understanding of which goals merit which level of investment. The result has been great exertions when crises erupt, followed by impatience and hasty disengagement. While I'm an optimist by nature, I fear that it would not take much to unleash a catastrophic series of events. As difficult as the world is today, it could get much worse if the US, if the United States retreats. So, so uh, I mean, you may want to build on that, but I, but I think that whole chapter uh, sort of captures a lot of your thinking, and actually a lot of the mission and purpose of the Atlantic Council at Indeed. the same time. Yeah. yeah. Please, sorry. Maybe I was Last inspired by the Atlantic Council to write this. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I think uh, we are in a, uh, following what uh, uh, Fred read, uh, we are in a period of retreat right now, a period of great exertion followed by uh, withdrawal. And, uh, you know, my, of course, preferred approach would be steady as you go, so to speak, uh, uh, to maintain, to help maintain order in three critical regions of the world, uh, being uh, uh, Europe, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, learning from the Atlantic Council, faces a triple crisis uh, uh, of, from the east, from the south, and internal. Mm -hmm. And in Asia, a new balance uh, is needed that, uh, as elements of a balance of power uh, in the region, but elements of reconciliation and confidence building and, and crisis uh, 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 prevention and management. And the same thing would be true uh, in, uh, in uh, kind of the broader Middle East that I include Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, uh, into that. Uh, that region is the least institutionalized uh, of, uh, of the three critical regions. And, uh, 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 and where one of the failures of or a lack of successes of our diplomacy has been to find, in the case of Afghanistan, particularly uh, an equilibrium between Afghanistan and Pakistan that precludes the use of Pakistani territory as sanctuary by uh, those who are fighting us and fighting the Afghans and still associate with uh, uh, terrorist groups with global reach, uh, including Al-Qaeda, although it has been weakened in that region, but still is, is, it's, it is very much there. Uh, so, uh, uh, I think uh, since we are in a period of retreat uh, uh, um, uh, and the public opinion is tired of the, uh, the uh, exertions of the previous period and believing that our efforts have had at best mixed results, uh, it takes a, a strong leadership to explain why we have to maybe make adjustments, but why we have to do what's necessary to remain engaged. And uh, uh, unfortunately, right now, uh, that is not what we, we see, mostly. Uh, I think there is one or two exceptions, but mostly in, uh, we don't see that. So I hope that uh, post-election, uh, there will be an effort to build a bipartisan kind of grand strategy, focus on these uh, three critical regions uh, uh, along the lines that I talked about. With regard to Iraq and Kurdistan, uh, I think that, uh, that uh, in that region, particularly in Iraq and Syria, ethnicity, which has been the case for a long time, the Kurds, 
and sect, sectarianism has become politicized and defining uh, issues and shaping uh, the, 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 the internal politics. Uh, and it's also there is a power struggle going on between the three bigger powers of the region, Iran, uh, uh, um, uh, Turkey, and, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. The president has talked about Turkey and Iran, but I think, uh, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but I think Turkey is also, especially with regard to Iraq and Syria, is a critical player. Uh, so uh, ultimately, although uh, I, uh, there may not be enough time to discuss it, there are uh, steps that need to be taken, but ultimately these three powers have to come to an understanding. Uh, on some rules of the game for the region uh, as a kind of, I've talked about neo-Westphalia type of agreement and Fred has talked about maybe an international conference mm -hmm. and the two could be one leading to the other yeah. as, is, as important. Uh, but I think to put this region together, either there has to be a kind of confederal federal uh, uh, arrangement given the, the politicization of these smaller identities or there have to be separation uh, and then coming back together uh, at some stage down the road like what you've seen in Europe to, a, to, to, to an extent. So uh, uh, the age of kind of pan-Arabism is gone. The age of pan-Islamism is gone. This is now the age of, uh, of these smaller identities that only in a confederal uh, uh, arrangement or separation could be, could be accommodated. Hopefully, it could be accommodated in a confederal arrangement or a federal arrangement. Uh, uh, but if not, uh, the, uh, I think separation is uh, clearly the other option. Thank you for that. So many more questions, so many more topics. We could talk on a lot in the book about the civilizational challenges within Islam. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. Thank a you. Wonderful book <laughs> by a great American. You're a great American. <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs>